Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Carl Rollison. He is Professor Emeritus at Brook College in the CUNY system. He has published numerous biographies of literary figures, such as Sylvia Plath, Susan Sontag, Lillian Hellman, Amy Lowell, Rebecca West, and Norman Mailer. In fact, I think he may be the just about the leading biographer of of American notables in 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 the in the country today. Uh, his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New Criterion, the Washington Post, and many other places. Today, today's topic is another biography. It's actually the first volume of a, a two-part biography. The second part will be out, I believe, this fall. It is entitled. The Life of William Faulkner, The Past is Never Dead, 1897 to 1934. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be with you. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I, I finished reading the book last night. It's a great read, focused heavily on, on the writings. You're really tracking him as, as a writer, as an author, and you've got great readings of the major works and some of the minor works as well, including a lot of the Hollywood screenplays or screen treatments that he worked on in, in the 1930s. So it's something I think teachers can recommend to their undergraduates. Uh, but, you know, the first question from reading the first sections really brought home the familial context of Faulkner's work. I mean, and the families are so important in his major fiction, The Sound and the Fury, about the kids, uh, As I Lay Dying, uh, a, a full family, the, the Snopes saga, which comes later uh, in, in your next book. What, first of all, what was Faulkner's family situation like, especially this, the, the grandfather and the great-grandfather, who seemed to cast a shadow over the fam Faulkner's family in his early years. Yes, Faulkner uh, was a part of a family that had come to Mississippi in the uh, middle of the 1800s. His great-grandfather uh, was very active in the state's politics. Uh, he was also a writer. He wrote a very popular novel uh, set on a riverboat uh, the, uh, and uh, he really um, 
there's a marble statue of him in Ripley, Mississippi, <laughs> that he himself uh, uh, ordered from Italian marble. Uh, and it, he's a, he was a force. That's what Faulkner called him, his great-grandfather, almost a kind of ghost that brooded over the post-Civil War South in Faulkner's community of Oxford, Mississippi. And there's this famous uh, line of Faulkner's uh, that biographers quote, when he's in school and he's asked, what is he going to you know, do and he, uh, when he grows up? And he says, I'm going to be a writer like my uh, great-grandpappy. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. There's, a, there's a, a family sense of mission, almost of destiny. He was the eldest son, so he felt a, a particular responsibility for that reason as well. He had a mother who uh, was a painter, and who had an aesthetic sensibility, and her her mother also, his grandmother also, uh, um, created toys for him, uh, things to play with, and encouraged his own very early on uh, artistic inclinations. Which at first his mother thought he might be a painter uh, because he loved to draw and he loved to work with the materials that artists work with. Uh, got very interested when he was only three years old in a blowtorch. Uh, that was the kind of sort of precocious kid he was. That, 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 that's a funny story you tell. He wanted a blowtorch. Yes. Yeah. He, he, was, he was a leader to begin with, too. He had younger brothers, and they very much looked up to him. And he was the one that, uh, as a kid, uh, tried to make an airplane. Uh, and they were going to make this thing fly by... Um, sort of pushing it over a hill, <laughs> which, of course, would mean a crack-up immediately. And the, the younger boys were sort of wise enough, uh, even at that point, to realize that their older brother was going to get them in trouble. So he was the one who commandeered the plane, and fortunately it wasn't too hard of a fall. But that's the kind of stuff that he was interested in, even as a kid, just fascinated with modern inventions, drawing pictures of locomotives, uh, and then later uh, airplanes. Uh, very curious, very much steeped in his own family past, to be sure, but, but but a man with a sense of the future. And in fact, one of the things I wanted to point out in the biography when I do talk about the novels is he's sometimes called a Southern novelist or a regional novelist. Of course, he's more than that, or he wouldn't have won a Nobel Prize. But he's very much in even though all uh, so much has been written about his obsession with the past, he was also interested in the future. And when you read some of his major novels, when I get to them in the second volume, like Absalom, Absalom, for example, uh, he's thinking about the future. Uh, he has a Canadian in that novel who says to Quentin Compson, who's obsessed with his southern past, uh, Shri says, the Canadian says, I who regard you now will have descended from the loins of African kings. It's a, it's a kind of anthropological uh, insight into the whole issue of race and how, the, how we're going to regard race differently in the future. Faulkner writes this in 1936. So he knew it was coming. Uh, he would not be uh, all that surprised by the world we're in now. Because if you read his fiction, you can you can see the world that we have now forming, shaping uh, in his writing. One of the things you bring out was how uh, trips to Europe, 
uh, trips to, to New England and, and then over to Toronto, Canada, when he was trying to train as a pilot to get into World War I. And then this time in New York as well among a, a literary crowd in the 1920s and early 30s, how it gave him a perspective on the South that perhaps allowed him to see beyond its past. One, one thing I found is, I mean, I'm, I'm a Californian. I was born, born in California and uh, went, to, went to school out there. Southern, but I, I then took a job in Atlanta at Emory University, was there for a long time. And found that, you know, Southerners are, are concerned with lineage and heritage, with family, genealogy, uh, more so than other Americans in other locales, even New Englanders. Do, do you find, do, do you also find that that's the case? And uh, why? Why do you think that is the case? You've written biographies of some other Southerners, like Lillian Hellman. Yes, that's right. I think it's it's um, uh, uh, Civil War did something to these people, to Southerners, in terms of their sense of community, the bonding that went on, the sort of devotion first to fighting the war and then to the lost cause. Faulkner grew up with you know a whole generation of men and women who you know bemoaned, regretted what had happened in the Civil War. His great grandfather actually. Uh, although he served um, on the the Confederate side uh, in one of his literary works, begins with preface talking about the need for reconciliation. Uh, And I think that's important. Faulkner understood when he traveled north. uh, It both put his place, the South, in perspective, but it also meant that the way he wrote about the South was for uh, not just his fellow Southerners, but for the world and certainly for the North. And uh, a fair amount of this fiction, when you look at it, a great novel like The Sound and the Fury, is actually set in the North. It's set in Cambridge. A later novel in the Snopes trilogy in Volume 2, uh, The Mansion, is partly set in New York. Faulkner actually wrote uh, a fairly significant amount of his fiction uh, in New York, uh, living in New York and sometimes in his publisher's offices. So he had a real strong sense of, um, as a writer, the importance of family, the importance of place, but also putting that place in a world context, uh, which is one of the reasons my biography, someone might ask, well, why two volumes? Um, there's been one other two-volume biography of Faulkner that was back in the 1970s, uh, published by Joseph Blotner, and there have been several one-volume biographies. Why yet another one, especially two volumes? Part of the reason is my wanting to relate these novels to, in a sense, the rest of the world, to show why Faulkner's a world-class writer. But the other is to really focus on him as a writer. And by that, I mean not just the novelist, but you mentioned before his screen treatments beginning in 1932 and for the next 20 years, off and on, he's writing for Hollywood. And if you read the the earlier biographies of Faulkner, uh, they tend to discount that work, that it was simply um, work for money. And I guess what I would say to that is, you know, we live in a world of mixed motivations. I used to say to my students, you know, I love to teach. If tomorrow the administration tells me, we know you love to teach so much, we know uh, we're not going to give you your salary. I said, you won't see me tomorrow. I I am very disappointed in you for for not giving of yourself. (laughs) Right. 
Well, Faulkner felt the same way, in, in a sense. And when he was in Hollywood, although he was certainly there for the paycheck, what I began to see when I looked, took a fresh look at his novels, uh, what, what, he, what he was writing in Hollywood got into the fiction, and what he was writing in the fiction got into his Hollywood scripts. So there's a, there's a kind of influence between these two very different kind of texts. And also Hollywood allowed him to write about things like he writes about a Latin American revolution in his Latin American kingdom story. It wasn't made into a film, but he did write it as a script, thought about it as a novel. Uh, it gave him a chance to write about women, about the city, about uh, other places, India, for example, uh, that don't appear in his uh, in, in his published novels. And what happens in the earlier biographies essentially is uh, Faulkner takes a trip to Hollywood. You're told he writes some scripts, and it's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the biographer takes you back home and to the fiction. I think this is because most of these books have been written by literary critics who are interested in the fiction. I'm interested in the writer. And I'm interested in the man. You know, how did this man live a life as a writer? What did it mean to live a life as a writer? That's what I hope people will, will see in this book and how successful he was, not as a best-selling writer, because his, his novels often didn't sell that many copies uh, until after the Nobel Prize, but how he used every moment, really, of his life and his work uh, to get something accomplished. So... Uh, the other surprising thing about it is about him is what a good collaborator he was uh, with men and women. One of his best scripts, The Big Sleep, uh, is in collaboration with a woman, Lee Brackett. So there are all these kinds of forces that are working on Faulkner's life that I think really do need to be told at, at some length. Uh, at first I thought I was going to do a one-volume biography, but then I realized no, uh, there's so many important novels, and there's so many interesting screenplays, and the fact that they influenced one another is something I thought people really ought to see what what a what a full account of a writer's life is like. One of the popular images of Faulkner is as this sort of oddball Mississippi guy living living in his you know uh, uh, tumbled down. Uh, former, you know, acreage, uh, recalling the old, old old Civil War days, and that he was just an oddball in in the literary world. But what you bring out very nicely in, in extensive passages is he spent a heck of a lot of time in the middle of these kind of writer colonies. One of the first one is in New Orleans with uh, the group of Sherwood Anderson and and Anita Los. And then the one in New York in, in the world of, of, of Bennett Surf, you know, the, the, the publishers and the writers in that world. Now, one thing you draw it is that they did regard him as, again, he's just a different character. This strange mix of when he was sober, that, that, that cavalier gentleman, you know, he was fairly reserved, uh, observant. You, you could sense a strength within this, this, this little man. But... You couldn't quite get to it uh, when he was drinking. It would be it, it, it might be something else. But uh, what what did those those literary companions that he didn't always get along with them very well? What what do you think that did for his for his writing? I think that uh, 
uh, he needed um, allies, uh, the kinds of uh, e- experimental, innovative novels that he wrote. He really needed um, more than even simply a readership, a kind of cadre of writers and publishers who believed in him. Very early on, there's this publisher, Harrison Smith, who comes along before Bennett Surf at Random House. And Harrison um, Smith uh, advances him money, uh, comes to visit him in Oxford. Uh, When Faulkner comes to New York, he stays in Harrison Smith's apartment. Harrison Smith uh, publishes the very early uh, masterpieces like The Sound of Fury and As I Lay Dying, and and then The Notorious Sanctuary, which is the book that really brings Faulkner to the attention of the public because of the the rape scene and and because of the the, uh, gangster element. It's almost his version of Little Caesar, uh, the the Hollywood film. And in, in fact, the novel was written right about that time. So in that sense, he needed the company of people. And yet, when he was with writers, with very few exceptions, Dashiell Hammett would be one one exception uh, where he really did uh, have a a bond. You know, he he really talked to Hammett, and Hammett talked to him. Uh, but but many writers did find him sort of aloof and and hard to talk to, and it was almost impossible to talk to him about his writing. He would just really clam up. Now, why did he do that? Um, I. Th- been, I've thought about that for a long, long time. Part of it was his southerness, his idea of a gentleman that you you couldn't just go up to somebody and talk to them. You had to have a kind of introduction. You had to have a kind of pedigree. I don't mean to say exactly that he was a snob, but he wouldn't just talk to anyone. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is is a class, it's, it's culture, it's upbringing. The other part of it is his conception of a writer. He writes a letter to his mother in 1925, and she says, he says, Sherwood Anderson has written this story about me. It's called The Meeting South, and uh, there's this character in it named David, and that's based on me. And then he says, now don't tell anybody. That's the kind of thing that you're not supposed to tell anyone. And essentially what he was telling his mother is, I have trade secrets, uh, and I can't afford to reveal them. Part of that has to do with not just wanting to keep it to himself, but I actually think that he felt his power was stored in his mind and in his books, and it would be almost dangerous to just talk about them in some easy way. As he got older, he relaxed. You know, he ends up at the University of Virginia in my second volume talking to classes of students and getting quite good at it, uh, and becoming a diplomat, essentially, for the State Department in a way that even writers who go on writer's junkets don't do, uh, and that, that he, he was able to do. Uh, so he, the, the other thing I think I do in the two volumes is show that as a writer, his whole sense of what he means uh, to say as a writer evolves over the course of his lifetime. And uh, it comes back to Hollywood when he gets to Hollywood in the 1940s in the second volume. He's he's writing about Charles de Gaulle in a film, and then he's writing another uh, film called Battle Cry. These films aren't produced, but he writes whole scripts, and he has to face things like the race issue and so on that become so important after the Second World War. Well, Faulkner's already thinking about this, in the mid-1940s. You know, 
if you look at a lot of the books that come out, Sound and the Fury and, and, and the others, there is an intense awareness of, I don't know how to put it, you know, the, meaning of, the meaning of life and the, the feeling of, of death and of loss. And, but but in, in your account of his, of his childhood and youth, the church doesn't really play too much of, of a role. In, in Faulkner's family, or in his or in in his own activity, his own his own daily round, uh, what were what were Faulkner's religious beliefs, Carl? Well, he he um, he grew he grew up simply by virtue of where he was. He grew up in a Protestant culture, so one of the things he absorbed, uh, and you didn't have to go to church to to. Uh, absorb this kind of thing, especially if you were as, as uh, uh, observant and uh, uh, keen at um, uh, looking at the way people did things. Faulkner absorbed so much of the Bible. I mean, the, the titles of his books, uh, Absalom, Absalom, the original title of another of his novels, The Wild Palms, is If I Forget Thee, Jerusalem. And the publisher said, "We can't, we can't use, we can't use that. That is a title. It has to be something different." So he was saturated in the religious culture of the South. But you're quite right; his family was was not religious, uh, except in the most superficial way. Uh, and yet, he had a profound religious intensity to him. I mean, he he quarreled with the existentialists, who you know. Uh, uh, said there is no God. He felt that that you couldn't understand the meaning of life without some some concept of the deity. Uh, he felt that was very important, but it was it, it was not tied to any kind of orthodoxy, to any kind of specific religion. And yet, the Christian symbolism of the Sound the Fury, the Easter Week, or uh, he names the character Joe Christmas. Well, how much more obvious can, can you get uh, to Jesus Christ and, and to the idea of sacrifice? So he was he was saturated with it. Doesn't Quentin in the Sound and the Fury commit? Isn't his day Good Friday? Is that yeah? In in, in uh, it, because it's dated. It's an actual historical date. Yeah, we have calendar dates in that novel. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so Faulkner obviously wants you to think about that that, that whole idea of uh, of Easter, of resurrection, of rebirth, and the irony of of Quentin not being able to, in a sense, you know, rise to the occasion. He's not able to 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 get beyond his imprisonment of the past. Yeah. You know, The Sound and the Fury, when you look at the preceding novels, uh, you, you, you give a lot of detail about the, the composition, the conceptualization of soldiers' pay and mosquitoes, the, the preceding novels. And then, I mean, and you can see the Faulkner, you know, the Faulkner hand in those novels. But with The Sound and the Fury, my goodness, we're, we, we, we've reached a whole new level of literary creation what what was the mix i mean what was what was the mystery that created this this fantastic leap that took place and then is followed by as i lay dying and then what two years later i mean we have sanctuary but then, and then we have light in august just in such a constant 
anticipated period, we've got three of the major novels in all of American literary history. Uh, what 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 was the what was this magical mix that transported him in, into the stratosphere? Yeah, no one no one can can um, I don't know if if anyone can uh, do justice to that leap from his first three published novels to The Sound of Fury. It just it almost seems like a miracle. I think it seemed like a miracle to him as well. Uh, the best I can explain it is you know, he wrote this novel called Flags in the Dust. That was his third novel. And it's the first one of what's called the Yaknapatafa novels that is set in his mythical county, which is really based on Lafayette County, where he, he lived in, in the town of Oxford in that county. Uh, and if you look at Flags in the Dust, which was originally published as Sartorus, and then after his death, actually, they went back to the original uh, manuscript and typescript and published it as Flags in the Dust. Uh, all of the elements of Faulkner's fiction, uh, uh, his, uh, his dealing with the South, his dealing with families like the the uh, the Compsons and the Sarderses and even the, there's a Snopes character in it so he's already by 1925 he's thought about the Snopeses and they get into this novel which is published in 1929 if you look at that uh at Flags in the Dust it's almost like he accepts the received wisdom uh you have for instance on racial matters you have fairly still stereotypical uh, black characters, but you can begin to sense his curiosity, his affection for them, how how these people are part of uh, a white family's life, as they were of his own his own family. They had they certainly had black servants, uh, and it it occurs in the novel. And I think what happens, and it's partly simply his ambition to be an original. That is, he even in in New Orleans in 1925, before he's written anything significant, there are stories about him at parties and people talking about Shakespeare and 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 uh, and Faulkner, who's really not anybody at that point, saying, you know, I'm, I think I'm capable of doing that kind of work, and people looking at him rather strangely. I think he looks at what he does. And he, he Sherwood Anderson encourages him, write about your little postage stamp of native soil. And Faulkner begins to do that in stories. Uh, and one of the stories, out of one of the stories called Twilight, this novel, The Sun, The Fury, develops. And I think that he, it's like, uh, like a, race, uh, a racehorse giving that horse its lead. He just let go completely. Uh, uh, and And just did you know exactly what he wanted uh and and all along biographically the best way you can explain this is he's saying to his father and his father's not a very literary person uh father likes to read zane gray likes to read westerns uh and and william falker is this boy who can't settle down they give him a job in his grandfather's bank and he's not very good at that uh although he puts it to use later in a film script uh, he, he's always sort of signaling to people, I'm more than what's right here. Uh, and that's what I mean by Faulkner's sense of the future. Not only did he have a sense of his own future, he had a sense of the world's future. In the 1950s, 
one of his one of the things he's talking about is overpopulation. <laughs> you know, and when he talks about the race issue, he you know he says to people, you realize most of the world is not white, and you better get used to that. Uh, so that that's the kind of person he was. So I think the novel, to go back to the sound of the fury, it's 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 his ability to to project to 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 look at the fiction he read, to look at Joseph Conrad, to look at Henry James, all of whom he read, and and say, okay, so what's the next step? You know, and that's when he gets into the stream of consciousness, when he gets into the the development of uh, in you know looking at characters from so many different points of view. And he reads, he doesn't tell anybody this, but he reads people like Bergson on time uh, in the, the sense of time beginning in the Sound of Fury is very influenced by French philosophy. And of course, without the French, he wouldn't have gotten his Nobel Prize. They're the ones that campaign for it. You know, people like Art and Camus say, you know, you have to give the Nobel Prize to this man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, on, on Sherwood Anderson, Anderson found himself when he focused on that little postage stamp of a locality and did his best work, I think, in, in the Winesburg, Ohio uh, novel, which, which is, I think, is a great, great novel that needs to be read, read more these days. Uh, let me ask, you refer to, and some other critics refer to, a, quote, primal lack that you can feel in Faulkner's novels just just this sort of the, you you read quentin's section and and the despair and the feeling of loss and and emptiness and something gone from from the world was there in faulkner's own life a, a primal lack that you would pinpoint well you know uh he's writing the sound and the fury uh on the one hand as a writer i think he he's experiencing great joy in exercising you know his fullest powers for the first time i think his view of women is quite interesting and he grows up with a childhood sweetheart estelle oldham uh and she's one of the few people around him who really understands him and she's as well read if not better read than he is uh, and there just aren't many young, and she was a, she really was a classic Southern belle. There weren't very many women who had that kind of combination of beauty, of grace, and and just very sharp intelligence. And she also did some writing, uh, which which I get into in the in the biography that had a tremendous influence on him. Uh, and so he grows up just assuming that they're going to be married, and so does she, but her family has ambitions. They, they want to marry up, uh, and they want to marry her to a lawyer. And, you know, by the time he's in his teens, uh, he's still floundering. Uh, he wants to be a writer, but people wonder, well, how are you going to support a family? People, his family likes her family likes him, but he doesn't seem to be really the kind of, you know, person, reliable person that their daughter's going to marry. Anyway, to make a long story short, it's essentially an arranged marriage. She marries Cornell Franklin, who's a, who uh, is a very upcoming, ambitious lawyer, and she goes off to to live in the Far East. I don't think he ever got over that. You know, eventually she divorces Franklin, and he marries Estelle right around the time that he's finishing up The Sound and the Fury. And that primal lack you're talking about is it was a huge wound that, that, that 
uh, he he ends up marrying Estelle after she divorces. But in a way, he never gave forgave her in a way for for leaving him for going away. Uh, and a lot of his fiction is, I think, is explained by that that uh, that tremendous wound that he received then. Uh, Carl, when is Volume Two? Uh, going to come out. That'll be 1935 to, well, Faulkner died in 64? 62. 62. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be coming out on September 25th, 2020, which is Faulkner's birthday. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Well, Carl, we, we, we might just have to have you on to finish the story, sir. I'd love to, sure. All right. The book is The Life of William Faulkner, The Past is Never Dead, 1897 to 1934. It's out with the University of Virginia Press. Thank you for joining us, Carl. My delight. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.